So hello everyone, uh, my name is Thomas and I'm joined by Emma and Chris and welcome to Paleo Party, a podcast where we invite a new paleo guest to hang out with us and talk nonsense about paleontology. Paleo Party is a podcast with a difference because we live stream each episode on twitch.tv slash paleoparty so you can get involved and ask us and our guests anything you like. It's our pleasure to have with us uh, a very special guest this evening. He's our resident dinosaur expert, and he spends his time working out what happens when you drop an asteroid on the heads of all of the dinosaurs. Straight from Sicily, it's Dr. Alessandro Chirenza, everyone. Hooray! Hi, everyone. Thanks for inviting me. And as with all of our previous episodes, we're asking our guests to attempt to explain their research using the OpGore 5 text editor, which only allows you to use the most common 1000 words in the English language. Obviously, this is a bit extreme, but we've asked Ali to try nonetheless. Ali, would you like to take it away? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, as a native English speaker, this is even more difficult for me, but yeah, I'm going to try. So my work looks at how some very old animals covered the land and what allowed them to do it best. With the passing of the years as this best would change, some of these animals could get in trouble when something would make them disappear. Like it happened a long time ago when a star fell on the land, making a big shake that cooled the land by a lot. I try to show how these changes happen with a computer, so it's make good guesses on different cases that may have troubled these animals. By studying how these very, very whole animals got in trouble, we can learn a great deal of how not troubling animals living with us today. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great that was, that was bloody great. But you really minimized mass extinction by calling it trouble. Yeah, trouble. It just sounded like it just sounded yeah. like all the dinosaurs had done something slightly naughty. Like Yeah, we, we oh, should be thinking about trouble. It's, a, it's a very British way of saying, you know, that is very true. Yeah, that is it's slight underestimation, isn't it? Like what happened to the dinosaurs? Oh, they got into a slight sticky sense of bother. <laughs> Would you like yep. to explain it using your own words and as many scientific right. terms as you require? Yes, so um, primarily I am an analytical paleobiologist, so I look at quantitative way of showing what happens to extinct animals. And in particular, my focus, in, my focus is on Mesozoic animals. So those animals, particularly vertebrates, so living on lands and things like you know, dinosaurs, of course, but crocs, lizards, turtles and how to so all these kind of terrestrial vertebrates, uh, basically how they were dealing and what's their mm, distribution like uh, depends from uh, climatic drivers. So whatever as a system affects the distribution of animals on the planet, how that may affect, for example, the dinosaurs. And one thing that we do, it's looking at big amount of data, like the data, for example, from the phenobiology database, which show the distribution of different fossils on the, on the planet, on the globe. And then we merge these data with you know, complex computational methods, uh, for example, conjoining them with climatic data. So outputs from general circulation models, for example, and we create models that you know, uh, show how likely are that some species are distributed in an area or in another. And then, for example, as Thomas was hinting, we, uh, for example, play 
uh, showing what would happen if you tune on some catastrophic events. So for example, if you drop the temperature of 50 degrees or 40 degrees Celsius, as we, something like that we know might have happened during the end Cretaceous mass extinction because of the asteroid, and then see how does the likelihood of some areas that may inhabited these animals uh, might shrink or you know move somewhere else. And with these kind of models, we try to create quantitatively an assessment of what might have happened during a mass extinction episode. Oh, like dropping a star. Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dropping a star casually. Yeah. yeah. As you do. Um, yeah. So this is a good point to remind any, any viewers, any guests out there that this is an interactive podcast. So you can get involved, have a little chat on Twitch or uh, send us in any questions to uh, Twitter as well. Um, anything you want to ask Ali or any of us from serious questions about dinosaurs becoming extinct from being had stars dropped on them and all that fun stuff <laughs> to any other various bits and pieces you might want to know about uh, Ali's life as a paleontologist or anything else. Um, so yeah, please, please send them in on the chat and we will do our best to answer them as the episode goes along. So I feel that now is a good time for our listeners who are not listening uh, on the Twitch, but in the podcast, because you can't see what's going on. But there is a lot of chat about, chat seems to be in mourning about Dr. Dean's mustache, which is currently oh, missing. No. And no. Chat, chat seems quite upset by the fact that your mustache is missing. In fact, one person said, uh, hashtag bring back the stash. And another person said, stash or riot. <laughs> so the chat is quite, quite upset. Oh, oh I'm so sorry, chat. But please, please forgive me. One person has made a suggestion that you should put yourself on mute and find a Sharpie and go and draw a mustache on, please. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll leave that suggestion with Dr. Dean and we'll find out what happens. Give me five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I digress. I'm very, very sorry about that. Oh, oh gosh, he actually looks like he's going oh, to Oh no, he's going to no, go. I, it was a joke. It was a joke. Oh no. Anyway, <laughs> oh, no, let's get back to what's happening. Let's get back. Let's not descend into complete anarchy. I have a question that I need to get out of the way before we move forward. What? Ali, what is your favorite dinosaur? Great question. Oh my god. So actually I'm kind of a weird character in that because I didn't really think I had one. As in, you know, it never happened to me that I was like, oh, I love that one. This is gonna be my favorite. I yeah, you know, I as a as as for the stuff that I've been publishing, I kind of like more theropods. But as you know, in these kind of jobs sometimes whatever happens so you know i've been working on other random stuff that completely were outside of my primary interest but they just happen so i didn't have it but if i had to choose you have to I choose <laughs> I, was about to, I was about to say that i was about to say uh, we will push you yeah yeah i think i would just go very very lame and say t-rex oh Oh. Surprise! <laughs> let down. Just to upset people, I oh, like no. doing that. I was so funny enough. I actually had a note here of a question to ask you, which was, oh, no, sorry, what is your favourite dinosaur? It's actually what a is, Tyrannosaurus. What, sorry. Oh, <laughs> oh no! Oh, Ali! Oh no! You're caught. I was going to ask you, what is your least favourite dinosaur? 
Yeah, actually, you could say that. You could say that. <laughs> <laughs> no. No least favorite. Mm. Could I say the duck? <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, right? What, like a, an actual duck? <laughs> yeah, ducks are what? mean and they're, and they're dinosaurs. Oh my gosh, <clears throat> Alessandra, what's happened to you, man? You and changed. They, and they have very weird reproductive, you know, strategies, as you know. So, I, well, let's keep this. Let's keep Next this question. family friendly. Can I tell you what? Can I tell you what my favorite dinosaur is? Because it might right. surprise it might surprise everyone to know that I have a favorite dinosaur, even though I, I, I dislike dinosaurs intensely. My favorite dinosaur is a dinosaur called Saltopus. Which right. is, which if you, please, if you haven't heard of Saltopus, just quickly Google no. Saltopus. It's basically a dinosaur that was found in Scotland. Saltopus means hopping foot. I think, I think it does. I think, is it a Norman Nudum though? Shh, shh, shh. Alessandro, stop. Anyway, Saltopus right. is, is basically, it's a, it's a rock that looks like a dinosaur may or may not have lay on the rock and then been run over by a truck. It's yes. it's just a mush, like a fossil mush. But anyway, but but actually, that gives you the chance to say something that it's really interesting. So one of the things that I allows my work is that we have tools provided from technology, and one of the things that relates that with Saltopus is there are people that uh, is a good friend of ours, uh, David Fofa, which is literally working on taking these blobs, CT scanning them at high resolution, and finding. You know, something that, you know, paleontologists 20 years ago couldn't see. They couldn't peer inside a rock and see the actual bones and a 3D model. So who knows, maybe Saltopus is going to become something more well-known in the future. I, bl future. I bloody hope so, because it is the best and worst fossil dinosaur of all time. <laughs> is it, is it Saltopus or so Saltopus? Hmm. If I had because to if it is the that... second, I've been saying it wrong my entire life. I love talking to Ali because I realise I've been like pronouncing everything wrong forever. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, the right pronunciation of everything. It's like Parasaurolophus and Parasoloferus. Like people get really upset yeah. about how you pronounce it. Yeah, I would pronounce that Saltopus. Hmm. How would you pronounce Dimetrodon? Dimetrodon. Well, that just sounded That just sounded really fancy. That just sounded really like exciting. Yes. So there is a rule of thumb at SVP that basically says that a name of a taxon, it's appropriately pronounced however uh, Luis Capé pronounces it. Because Luis Capé is this paleontologist, this famous dinosaur and birds paleontologist, who I think it's, uh, I think it's Latin from uh, Latin heritage. I can't remember exactly what's the country. But he basically has the Spanish pronunciation, which is very close to all Latin words. And he would say triceratops instead of triceratops, or would say tyrannosaurus instead of tyrannosaurus. Yeah, so I hope that all species names be pronounced in Spanish and Italian accents from now on. <laughs> yeah, it's approved. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 a weird one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now we know what your favorite dinosaur is. Um, I think now would be a good time for us to ask you a simple question of what is a dinosaur? 
Mm. And also, uh, what is the major, like a lot of people will probably have seen skeletons of dinosaurs in museums and things, but like, why are they important? Why do people care about dinosaurs? Right. Thomas, that's so, a okay. question. It's a loaded okay, question. question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's, I mean, do we have uh, like half an hour, two hours? How, how long we have, we have approximately 40 minutes, go. Yeah, so the basic thing is that if you like, not all animals that are in a museum of natural history are dinosaurs. So if you see then the hip bone, there is like a very round window where you would fit a femur, which is the thigh bone, and the sort of hip thigh, uh, you know, sort of uh, articulation would be a 90 degree, uh, a 90 degrees. So with the legs underneath the body, that would be a dinosaur. If you would have, like in a crocodile, for example, no window in the hip and the femur sticking out horizontally, so laterally, it's called sprawling, that would be a crocodile. So very close relative in the reptilian family tree, but not an actual dinosaur. Uh, or like you would say in, you know, a larger branch of the tree of life, amniotes. So if you see your hip bone in a radiography, you would have like this sort of cup not a completely pierced and broken window where you would fit the head of the femur. So that would be one. There would be other features which are a little bit more subtle. For example, uh, the forelimb would have a humerus. So, you know, the this bits, you know, you can see my muscles, you can see how bulky I am. But basically, I don't For anybody who's listening to this later, Annie's like really small. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was much nicer than what I was going to say. So let's just move on from that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Emma. But yeah, basically that you would have like a big biceps, uh, which would attach to a uh, similarly large ridge in the humerus. So in uh, the first and more closer to the body uh, bone of the forelimb. And this would be another. There would be other features in the skull, but these would be the main ones. And everything that descends from an animals like that, so preserves most of these features, it's likely to be a dinosaur. And as for why do we care and why it's important? So if we put that in perspective, we appeared as a species around 250,000 years, maybe 200,000, something like around this range, somewhere in South Africa. And then we started widespreading around the globe. But if you think of a dinosaur, you know, dinosaur as a group evolved back in the Triassic, so appeared around 240, 235 million years ago, and they went extinct 66 million years ago. These makes up like something like 160 and 165 million years. So that means that dinosaurs experienced Pangaea being a thing and Pangaea not being anymore a thing because the continents will break up oh, the Atlantic wasn't there. And then the Atlantic started appearing. So they're changing not only the geography and the way continents are connected, but also the climate, of course. And so they're like an ideal uh, study animals that it's clo relatively closest to us because they're vertebrates as we are and they're amniotes as we are. And that experienced so many changes in upheaval and they went through also, uh, you know, probably... The Permo-Triassic mass extinction is the biggest mass extinctions that ever happened around 251 million years ago. Uh, dinosaurs likely weren't there, but their precursors were. And some of these changes might have allowed their ecological release. So they're starting to widespreading and adapting to the globe. 
Then eventually they experience another mass extinction uh, at the end of the Triassic. So we're talking about 201, 200 million years ago. And then they survived again, other changes, and then they disappeared, almost all of them, 66 million years ago, to have just a you know, tiny branch of them surviving and radiating, so widespreading as the birds. So they experienced so many changes uh, in uh, the, the, story, the history of the planet that they make an ideal sort of case study to understand evolution and changes on the ecology, on the way also the anatomy was adapted and the physiology eventually adapted. Many things that are useful to understand how changes in climate, changes in the ecology can impact animals today, for example. So they're, I think, a cool lesson and a cool laboratory to study evolution. Nailed that. Yeah. Very good answer. Right, fine. I was basically I con- taking notes for like the next time I get asked. Yeah. Fine, I will concede that they are slightly <laughs> interesting. Fine. Give yes. you an idea of that sense of scale. We had a paleo party dinosaur tweet earlier, um, which was talking about the lengths of time we have involved with dinosaurs. And this is this one is it's a bit of a common one, so you may well have heard it before, but I, it always blows my mind when I hear it, in the fact that there is more time elapsed between the existence of Tyrannosaurus rex and Diplodocus. So Diplodocus was around 155 million years ago. Um, T-Rex was around 66 million years ago. Um, So there's more time elapsed between that than there is between T-Rex and the present day. So we are closer in time to a T-Rex than a T-Rex is closer in time. Yeah, that's that's mad. Like, so I heard that one, but like, that T-Rex is closer to having an iPad than it ever was to meeting a stegosaur. Yes. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Anyway. yeah. Someone, is asking, cool. someone is asking where my background is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, where is your background? So so this is Dinosaur Provincial Park. Uh, this is the uh, KPG boundary. So I don't know if you can actually see it. Is my finger pointing? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so where my index finger is, that's the boundary when Cretaceous ends. So dinosaurs disappears at this black line. And above that, dinosaurs are no more, at least the big ones. So for podcast listeners, Alessandro has a picture behind him, which has, it's like, there's a little bit of foliage at the bottom and then a light gray rock and then a, like a black line and then a darker rock. And that line right. signifies the extinction event, which is pretty cool. Yep. To be honest, that's pretty amazing. And that's it's great. Oh. Yeah, it's great to see that in the field. This is from Wikipedia. <laughs> so I was just oh, gonna uh, ask, is, did you visit it yourself? Because you've been no, there, right? I, uh, yes, but I haven't seen the KPG boundary in Alberta. I've seen that in Montana in the US. Oh, I thought you were gonna say you hadn't seen it at all. And I said, no, 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 no you've definitely seen it. Yeah, no, when we went, actually we were together. Uh, I think we were a little bit lower and so older in geologic time. But yeah. Yeah, yeah KPG boundary or the Cretaceous and Cretaceous mass extinction for um, the people who don't know what KPG is, because that doesn't make yeah. any sense when you talk, think about Cretaceous. But um, that is, this is your bread and butter. This is what your PhD was based on and what you yeah. study most extensively. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, about what caused the mass extinction of dinosaurs based on your own research? Yeah, so basically using the sort of tools that we assembled, my coders and myself, so working at how 
climate may affect the distribution of species around, but also mitigating for something which is called fossil bias. So we, of course, are not that lucky to have fossils everywhere. And also, as I was saying, this the amount of time where dinosaurs lived is so huge that we inevitably, be, inevitably, inevitably have gaps in our records. So using some statistical methods to mitigate for that. So taking into account something that we know may exist, but for which we don't have tangible proofs and using some mathematical models to ameliorate for that. So taking that into account, we could track, for example, whether the lineages of dinosaurs were in decline already in the millions of years before the extinction or not. And there was some, you know, there is a, some bit of discussion on the literature, scientific literature, or whether dinosaurs were already going towards a sort of an inevitable decline. And then eventually the asteroid was, you know, you know, the, the, the last bullet, the silver bullet that killed them off. But, um, and so we showed that actually they were flourishing and probably the, the reasons why we have so much uh, places that shows in North America, particularly where we have a very good record, that show some sort of decline is due to some preservational bias. So basically we have a lots of missing information right towards the end of the Cretaceous, so where dinosaurs were living. And, and so we could sort of pick up that, which eventually was even recently backed up from with other lines of evidence using phylogenetic methods, which are these methods that builds a tree of life and then measures the uh, numbers of lineages that split at any given point. And this gives us a measure of how a group was sort of producing many more species than actually were, get, were going extinct. So we now know that they were pretty much flourishing, they were radiating, so changing in different forms, forming many new species, and then eventually disappeared suddenly. And there was another sort of thing that I majorly uh, studied in my PhD, which was the actual agents. What was the thing in the Earth system? So if you take into account everything in a dynamic Earth from climate, geography, all the, everything in the environment that was affecting the ecology, what was the thing that actually killed them off or majorly affected not only them, but also other species. And, you know, in the kids' books and everywhere, there's always this discussion, you know, there were these huge, big volcanic provinces in India that was active, which is called the Deccan Traps. And some people were suggesting that these might have affected, uh, you know, with lots of pollutants, the environment's atmosphere, maybe cooling or warming up the environment, stressing it out, causing an extinction. While the other hypothesis sees as this star that fell in the Gulf of Mexico 66 million years ago, and for which we have these 200,000 uh, kilometers wide uh, uh, crater in the Gulf of Mexico. Basically, uh, these might, you know, the impact of that melted lots of rocks, pulverized the, the back rocks of the, you know, Gulf of Mexico, what we now call the Gulf of Mexico, and spreading lots of pollutants in the environment as well, darkening the, you know, blotting out the sun, darkening the sky, causing, you know, a chain reaction that eventually led to the demise of the dinosaurs. 
And so using these sort of methods that take into account how an, uh, the climate may change given so you know, a set of changes in parameters or tweaking in parameters and how the species in the that widespread in the globe may react, uh, I worked out that it's more likely than the asteroid caused the, uh, the extinction of the non-even dinosaurs and likely of all the other Anchorage's biota rather than the Deccan traps did. And actually proposing that if anything, uh, these taken together with other evidence on the dating of these uh, volcanic uh, activities, likely they didn't cause an extinction, but may have helped out the biota to survive and eventually flourish after the extinction. And yeah, these are the two main broad topics that I you know, dealt with in the, during my PhD. Cool. So is it, is it weird, as a follow-on question then, is it weird to start, spend your entire academic life studying how your favourite organisms died? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Brutal! Yeah. Well, it's yeah, an interesting question though, because like, no, it is, when people actually. think of paleontologists, they think of someone who studies dinosaurs or trilobites or ammonites, they don't necessarily think of someone who studies extinction. So yes, so you... Actually, this is a very neat question because it's also something that wasn't really, you know, foreseen or predicted. But at the beginning of my PhD, it kind of happened because while putting together these methods, I was like, oh, these actually may work out to test hypothesis on mass extinctions. And then I played with it. And <laughs> eventually that became, you know, the core of my PhD. But, you know, someone, I think, okay, Jack Horner once said or wrote somewhere that he didn't give a damn about dinosaurs extinction which i can see where it comes from because you know if you're interested on a on a form of life or in a group you're interested on in their paleobiology or in their biology if they're extant so you know how they work how they live how they uh, function in an integrated ecosystem but then eventually you realize that if you want to understand that knowing how, what may tweak that, what may modify, what may affect that system is actually a cool way to understand the, the actual paleobiology in a similar way of how physiology of you know, a human body is understood and was you know, more deeply understood with the pathology. So knowing how they may be negatively affected by illnesses. So yeah, eventually, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask. Yeah, we're, we're always looking at death because everything that we use to answer our questions that we have are is based on things having to die first. So Yeah, but there's a difference between working on something that's dead and then working on what wiped out an entire <laughs> group of animals. Yeah. I would I would argue. But you know, maybe that's just semantics for me. Yeah. We already had enough semantics. <laughs> So I want to ask about that wiping out. So like you, you, we, we, as you talked about in your Abgur 5, you kind of literally dropped an asteroid on your models, on your simulations to see what happened to these kind of, to these dinosaurs and how they died. So I wondered if you could kind of walk through what would actually happen when that asteroid hits the earth in the kind of seconds, minutes, hours, yeah. years afterwards. Cause yeah, yeah it, it's something that's so hard to imagine as someone right. sitting on the earth today. 
um, yeah, can you, I just wonder, yeah, can you talk us through a little bit of that? Right, so there is also this, this aspect which I found very fascinating that people uh, that are not into paleo, they always maybe, you know, watch the news or sometimes look at a documentary and they're like, oh, that's how they die because they literally see this picture of a big, massive rock hitting the earth, like Gulf of Mexico, you know, you, you see all kind of catastrophic flames and things and that everything dies and that's how they think the extinction happened. But, you know, of course, we, we're talking about the explosion, okay, the, the asteroid hitting the surface of the planet, surely we know and we quantified and some people working on different kind of disciplines from astrophysics to, structure, to structural geology worked it out that the energy involved in this event must have been in the range, in the order of magnitude of 1 billion atomic bombs. So we're talking of a catastrophic, huge reaction from just the energy involved. And that of course might have, you know, triggered instant fires in most of North America, for example, because they were the area closer to where the asteroid hit. We know that there are evidence of you know, either tsunamis or something very close to, you know, big waves going not only in the coast of the uh, Atlantic, but at the time there was an, an inner, like a sort of um, epicontinental seaway. So an inner seaway that was sort of dividing into North America. And we know that the this water body probably because of the push that received from this impact inundated more inland North America. So we have like this sort of tsunami going on in the in the middle of North America, all this kind of stuff. But as I was saying, because of this energy involved, the actual uh, earth crust pulverized and fused and everything that uh, got brought up in the atmosphere eventually rained as a sort of a, when you know these sort of uh, particles were falling, uh, when flying on the atmosphere, then eventually were falling down again. And when cooling down, they were basically recrystallizing, forming some sort of you know diamond rain. And this was literally falling on the heads of the dinosaurs, not only the dinosaurs, but all the other animals and falling on most of the globe, being distributed on most of the globe. And while this was happening, of course, many gases were being produced uh, by just the uh, atomic division, uh, the, the molecule being fried, let's say, of the continental crust. So many rocks were basically making up sulfides of CO2 all these pollutants that we know reacted with the atmosphere and then eventually cooled down, caused basically either greenhouse effects or cooling the atmosphere because we're absorbing radiation from the sun. And at the same time, dust were being, was being widespread around the whole globe. And this dust we know that got distributed so well that we literally have a a boundary, a, a rock boundary, which is distributed on most of the planet. You can find that in Denmark, in Spain, in North America, in Italy, where it was originally discovered. And one of the things that it's very cool that in these actual boundary that Thomas was describing and that I got in my background, if you go doing some geochemical analysis, you can find, uh, you can find basically an element, a very rare elements that is not that richly, widely present in the earth, which is called the iridium. 
is an element of the platinum group, which now we know because of several geochemical evidence, it's probably, uh, it probably comes and is abundant in rocks from space like meteorites. And these actual uh, spreading of dust and gases which reacted with the atmosphere, cooling down the environments, not only blotting out the sun and of course causing the, uh, you know, the death of the photosynthesis chain, but also cooling down the you know, environments and then causing many animals to starve and suffer of the thermic stress, thermal stress may have caused the extinction. And so these actual thing, more than the tsunami, the mega tsunami or the earthquake that the actual impact caused that may have lasted for like no more than a day, these actual uh, poisoning of the atmosphere that may have lasted for decades or centuries, we don't actually know for sure, these were the real driver of the extinction. What caused many animals to not being able to breed anymore, many animals to feed anymore, very few ones that were adding in, you know, uh, burrows or river systems or some somewhere else could survive and try and eventually thrive after the earth came back from the apocalypse. But that's the actual cause of the extinction. Sounds horrific. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it also sounds so cool. <laughs> like, imagine, well, so one thing that blows my mind was that um, there was a, a study uh, I don't know when it was, it was a while ago, where they were looking at what would happen if a, an asteroid impacted different types of sediment and how right. the sediment that the asteroid impacts would have significant effects on um, uh, like the, the ejector, so what is launched yeah. into the atmosphere. But also what's another thing that no one really talks about, but it's really important is how the asteroid impacts, because if it impacts straight down on the planet, it's significantly different than if it impacts on an oblique angle. Because if it, if it hits on an oblique angle, then it sprays debris yes. into the atmosphere in a certain direction, which then can be picked up much quicker by winds. And so it's yeah. mad, like there's so many variables. But my, my favorite fact is that as the asteroid entered the atmosphere and got close to the planet, it was so hot that it melted and evaporated the rock before it even hit the planet. And then, and then it hit the planet. Yeah. It's mad. Oh, yeah. wow. Anyway. Yeah. And this is all stuff that's been worked out mostly by one of my co-authors, Joanna Morgan and her group, uh, which is, was at the period, like she is at the period college. And she had one of these students, uh, no, Oriel, Chris, you know him, and he basically was sitting be like beside me at the imperial desk, right? And he had samples from the Chicxulub crater. It's like he literally had some of the results of this expedition that Joanna, uh, her supervi his supervisor, led, where you know they were literally caused from the Chicxulub crater. That is and so cool. He, <laughs> and you know they would all work on these sort of. Uh, making computer models uh, based on mostly seismic data and petrographic data to work out what Thomas was describing. So the energies, trajectory balls, the mechanical stresses that are exerted and eventually uh, are reproduced as a reaction of the oceanic and uh, air crust to the impact itself. So it's so mind blowing. 
but yeah, that's still ongoing work, right? Like the, there's still yeah. so much to find out. There's still so much data to go through. I mean, I think uh, today a paper came out, like another one that was showing that by sampling the cores of the Chickstrup crater, they saw that the life came back very quickly. And so describing the fossils that were present, the productivity of the environment, how it was eventually recovering after the event. So, you know. So that, well, yeah, that segues very nicely into, so we've had one question, which was, was it only the dinosaurs that became extinct by this event? And the, the answer of that is no. There are lots of animal groups that went extinct around the same sort of time, like uh, ammonites. And, ammonites yeah. and balamites are very famous examples. And Dinosauramids, <laughs> my beloved bivalves. And <laughs> that day. Dr. Dean's beloved yes. bivalves. Um, but the, um, I, so I think, so I mean, the, the short answer of that is no, there are lots of things that went extinct. But then this, we've got another question here from friend of the show, Nasaber who has asked, um, is there any reason why dinosaurs went extinct and not other animals, e.g. us, mammals? Well, not right. us, not so, human beings, because we went around, but mammals. So another fact that people kind of give for granted and it sort of distorts a little bit the perception of this mass extinction, people think that because some stuff survived and clearly if we evolved and we are here, uh, talking on Twitch, we did uh, our lineage did survive. Yeah, the birds aren't talking be... on Twitch, so what were they doing? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it must have been untouched. Actually, that's not the case. We know that yes, some lineages were uh, didn't go clearly wiped out, but they were strongly affected. So we know that fifty percent or maybe more of the mammals got wiped out. We know that the huge amount of families or group of birds completely got wiped out, like the Anantonidins, which are a great and awesomely diverse group of uh, birds uh, that was very widespread at the, at the time of dinosaurs. And they weren't that different from the Neonitins birds, so the birds that survived. Uh, they got completely annihilated. And turtles were affected, even if less. Crocs were affected, even if less than the others. As I was saying, mammals did uh, get affected, but eventually some lineages did survive. And the real the question is how that happened. So were there some particular traits, uh, so characteristics in the biology that allowed them to survive? Uh, some people in the 90s and early 2000s made some big statistical and analytical studies to study that. And some people were originally convinced that maybe their geographic range was something that allowed them to survive. But now people is thinking that maybe that may not be the case. So one of the things that we clearly see unifying all these animals that survived, that survived is that they were very small. They were living in ecologies that may allow them to, to survive on food or uh, resources that weren't like so large or needed to, you know, uh, we're talking about something that may live uh, with uh, organic matters, uh, so may not may have survived not with the foliages, for example, also the so-called primary production. So maybe all the all the organic matters that got uh, distributed in the in ecosystems when these events happened may have provided a sort of a resource for these animals to survive. We know that many of these animals that survived were living in fluvial systems, in lakes and in rivers, basically. 
And one of the things that we know, for example, is that the birds that were living on the trees were almost completely wiped out, almost completely. While we know from phylogenetic evidence and evidence from other sort of fossil evidence that the tree, the birds, for example, that survived were all descendants from tree uh, from ground dwelling birds. So that means that because we know that there were like global uh, fire, uh, uh, fire or forests around, because you know the the heat stress from the actual impact was so catastrophic that burned down entire forests. Maybe that was an, an actual stress that killed off many of the tree dwelling animals. And mm -hmm. that's how eventually uh, the, the, those birds that descend, you know, uh, the passerines, all the birds of the seagulls, everything derives from an ancestor that was lucky enough to spend more time in the ground than actually in the trees. And then eventually that provided an advantage in that situation. So my survival strategy over lockdown, being buried in my sofa under many blankets, eating crisps <laughs> and that kind of processed food, I would survive a mass extinction. This is what you're telling me, because this is what I'm hearing. Yes. Wow. Yeah, sometimes there's only, there's only one way to find out, and that's with some experiments. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sometimes Please being no. lazy helps. I just, I would like to just quickly segue back because we had a great comment in the chat from Bernard the Gurnard that basically yes. said, how do you feel that the duck survived? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is hilarious. And then I thought just to rub salt in the wound, I would quickly Google when ducks evolved and they evolve around the time of the KPG. Yes. So, ha! Yes. So these are actually, so, okay. Ducks in general are a group, are a lineage, a branch of the bird's tree of life that it's very close to the base. So, you know, the what we would say a more primitive lineage of birds. So for example, a falcon or, uh, you know, a passerine bird would be more derived. So, you know, closer to the tip of the tree of life. But early on in the branching off of the evolution of birds are, for example, ducks or chickens. And we know that there are uh, birds that are really close and really similar to modern day ducks or probably uh, their ancestors. They literally survived the aftermath of the, Cretaceous, uh, the end Cretaceous mass extinction. And so we have something that looks pretty much like a duck that did survive, you know, sparse and very rare and precious fossils. But we do know that probably they were, they were around and they were so mean animals that teeth managed to <laughs> survive the, the yeah, I mean, the what you're basically telling, what you're telling me, Alessandro, is ducks are the best dinosaurs. That's what you're telling me. That's what I'm hearing right now. Yeah, possibly. Next time you, next time you well, see a duck, you're going to look at them very differently. Um, I mean, yeah, uh, when I throw it bread, I'll be like, what happened to you, mate? You survived yes. the KPG mass extinction and now yeah, you're nibbling my toast. Ugh. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that, well, I mean, ducks, they've been around for 66 million years just to curse you, Alessandro. <laughs> yeah, that's everything in my life. Anyway. <laughs> Whoa, this got dark. <laughs> uh, so Lizzie has asked what parasites became extinct along with dinosaurs, which is both an impossible and non-impossible question to answer mm -hmm. because obviously dinosaurs are predominantly known from skeletal remains, although there are some soft tissues, but not many. 
and parasites are typically very soft-bodied, so they wouldn't preserve. But dinosaur bones often preserve pathologies, and we see many diseases in dinosaur bones. Do you know anything about mm -hmm. that, Alessandro? Does, wait, does so, anyone in the paleo, group, paleo party group know anything about this? So one cool thing, okay, so this is basically right. What you said about the, you know, the, the fact that having soft tissues preservation in dinosaurs is so rare that we don't even have ideas of how the scale of dinosaurs was. So go figure whether it was, you know, affected by some illness or pathology. But, you know, one thing that definitely can tell you is that many dinosaurs that were around at the time of the extinction, uh, they're so abundant in places like North America, particularly things like Triceratops are so abundant that we have a large sample, not only of complete skeletons, but also in, you know, perfect and pristine bones, but also things that died because of other dinosaurs. Uh, so we do have, for example, uh, ribs. I think I saw one today somewhere at a rib of a Triceratops that basically got pierced and chewed off by a Tyrannosaur, but the animal didn't die the Triceratops survived and then eventually you, when they fossilized, it fossilized this sort of um, uh, bony cancer that grew where the tooth basically uh, stroke on the rib. So this is actually not strictly a parasitic reaction, but a predation reaction, but yeah, it's pretty cool. But yeah, I don't think we have anything coming from parasites that I'm aware of. Well, this uh, is where invertebrate taphonomist Thomas Clement steps up to the plate because during my master's degree I actually wrote a paper not not a scientific paper but a, like a project thing yeah. all about this which was in which is expertly titled dinosaur s-o-r-e oh my god yes oh, amazing um, and I was interested in paleopathology. So one urban myth uh, about dinosaurs is that they suffered from a lot of arthritis because they were so big. And that stems from a couple of papers from the 1800s where they, um, sorry, uh, yeah, early, yeah, late 1800s, early 1900s, where they describe dinosaur bones with all these funny nobbles on their um, knees. But actually, it's not the case. So they've done huge studies now where they've looked at like loads and loads of adult specimens and they find very little evidence for arthritis, which makes sense because most animals, if you get arthritis, you die. Like, you know, yeah. you can't walk, you can't hunt, so you die. So that's not a thing. But they do find evidence for parasites in some, some theropod bones. I think they were from an allosaurid. And they have these funny pits on the bones okay. that come from a parasite, which modern birds can be infected right. by. Right, okay, yes. I, I, I think now you make me realize that I said something that is very untrue. The, <laughs> one of the most famous dinosaur, which is Sue, uh, actually has pathologies, which probably came from parasitic infection. Uh, Trichomonas, which I think it's a protozoan that affects, we know also ch uh, chicks today. Uh, so, uh, you know, birds that exist today, they're very common. And we know that one of the, you know, the, the parasitic, uh, you know, agents that affects them today affected also their relatives in back in the Cretaceous. So we have like these sort of rounded holes nearby the posterior side of the mouth. So that means that probably 
they were eating something that was infected. Uh, someone speculated they were carrions uh, and eventually got infected. And Sue might have died actually of this infection. And so, yeah, that's all. Even could have been even for the bite of another dinosaur that was infected and then mm. passed it on. Uh, so, cool. yeah, don't worry. Actually, I think. Don't worry, you're not the yeah. only person who said something wrong. Apparently, chat has chastised me for saying that I fed toast to ducks. I would just like to confirm <laughs> that I've never fed toast to ducks. It was just, just, it just, there was an expression of speech that went horribly wrong. <laughs> I, I only give them the finest sourdough. <laughs> That's you don't give them any bread. That's a joke. That's the bottom line. That's a joke. That's a joke. Anyway, I, uh, cool. Um, so um, I'm just going to quickly uh, change the topic because we had a question quite early on, actually, from mm. friend of the show, Jim Jam. And I've kind of been saving it because I think it's a really cool question, which is mm. what is one thing, Alessandro, or any of the Paleo Party group, that you wish more people knew about dinosaurs that isn't common knowledge or in the pop culture? Hmm. Right. So there is some sort of an underappreciation of what the actual diversity of dinosaurs was. And this probably it's, you know, you, you know, you always know of dinosaurs because of Jurassic Park and most of the documentaries that are around particularly today, are basically derivative from that movie. So when you think about dinosaurs, you may think about, you know, Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus Rex, and maybe you've got a couple of duckbills uh, and maybe a long neck one, but that's it. But this is like an underappreciation of how diverse morphologically, so in their aspects, in their features, in their features dinosaurs were, but it's also connect with something that I was saying early on, that they lived so long. So it's such a large amount of time and so many things happened to the planet when they were living that they makes you really, that, that makes you put the value of biodiversity in perspective. Because if you think about how tiny and how insignificant, not your family history, nor the history of yourself or of your city, but of actually your old species is compared to a dynasty of animals that not only so basically we can say survived two mass extinctions because birds are still living today and you see something that it's such humble and precious and good like good looking like a hummingbird and something so fearsome like a t-rex that basically come from the same evolutionary lineage and you know they survived 230, 240 million years ago. And it is something amazing because if not, you only, okay, they lived a long time ago and they were weird and big and some, some of them scary. I know I can name five of them, that's it. But actually it's not, it's an evolutionary legacy and it's something that surpasses so much of our own experience in this planet that should really humble us and should really make us understand how precious as the guardians of biodiversity today, we should be. Particularly because birds are some of the animals that are mostly affected by our actions in the planet. Kind of a bit speechless. Yeah, I was about to make like a joke, but whoa, that was... <laughs> so, well, yeah, hummingbirds. Way. I think it's like seeing a hummingbird in the wild for the first time, which is only like two years ago, the first time I ever saw a hummingbird. I was, it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen, I think. Yep. 
like I biologically speaking, it was it blew my mind. So I'm totally yeah. with you with that. Yeah, no, uh, I, I unfortunately didn't experience them completely in the wild. It was a zoo, so still a controlled environment. But seeing them buzzing around is like, my God, I could just like stare at them for, mm. you know, days. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Well, that was an oh, amazing answer. Do you two have anything that you want to, to add on to dinosaurs? Don't think I could do. I don't think I can add. Okay, wait. Let me. I'll put it another way. You don't have to follow on from that. But is there any interesting facts about dinosaurs that you think is underappreciated? Mine is mine is the mine is the roaring. Like I have a massive (laughs) massive beef with Jurassic Park and all of that jazz, because whenever you see a predatory dinosaur, they like burst out of a hedge and then they roar at you and then they try to eat you. Like no animal does that. And plus the fact, right. we don't even know if dinosaurs could roar. Like, exactly. probably they sounded like crocodiles or something. So they probably just made a hissing yeah. noise. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Dude. And if honks like a goose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's way more terrifying. Imagine if a T-Rex jumped out of a hedge and went honk, like right in your face. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that's right. And if you think about it, so we know, for example, that you were right. Like, what what do we know if they probably produce something like, you know, croc sounds, right? The sort of low growling, something that is almost imperceptible. Also, because most of the sound production from crocodiles, which we know it's super diverse, but it's infrasound, so we can't percept them. So we have no idea of the variety of the diversity of vocalization that mm. might have been infrasounds based and we would just be in front of a huge you know 30 or 40 feet long duck from hell and maybe not listening (laughs) not being able to not being able to actually listen to anything while it's probably communicating with something that would probably chop your head off uh i mean (laughs) It probably think would just think it. you're really rude for not answering it. Yes. Like it's been talking to you for 20 minutes and you just stood there yes. looking at it and it's like, hey, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. When Ali was yeah. talking about like the mad diversity of dinosaurs, the thing that struck me was that the, the amount of stuff that we will never know, despite mm, right. how much we already know and how much we know that there was. I saw a paper, was it this week or the last week or very recently about platypuses under UV light, they fluoresce. Yeah. How many dinosaurs fluoresce under UV light? Like how yeah. cool would that and be? In, right. And in, in, the, um, in the second Jurassic Park book, The Lost World by Michael Crichton, Yes, he hypothesizes that some dinosaurs might have been like chameleons and could change colors. We'll yep. never know. Imagine yep. that though. I mean, yep. I'm sorry, but that's just the coolest thing in the world to me. The idea yep. of a chameleon-like dinosaur. Yeah. And and yep. also it doesn't, it didn't even need to be a predator. Like what happens if like the herbivorous, herbivorous dinosaurs to hide from the predators could change their colors? Imagine. Don't see that in paleo art, do you? Yeah. So there's actually uh, there's a paper that came out this year or last year uh, from Carrie Woodruff and other people I think they own I can't remember exactly but basically they were looking at this sort of weird possibility that some dinosaurs may produce like either weird kind of shades of colors and I can't remember exactly if they were referring also to fluorescent colors but definitely they were talking about cryptic colors that possibly to the range of visions of a human 
or a mammal in general that may have, you know, if you take a pigeon under UV light or, you know, they have like crazy color patterns that we wouldn't possibly see today. Don't uh, feed the pigeon toast. Just yes, saying. <laughs> and ask the pigeon's consent before you put it under UV light. Always. <laughs> Right. Well, anyway, we've been rabbiting on for nearly an hour. So it's the part of the show where I ask an awkward and difficult question that our guests and hosts have no idea is coming. And wow. we've talked a lot about dinosaurs. And it's been very painful for me. But um, <laughs> Alessandro, dinosaurs get a lot of press. Dinosaurs are very popular. They're the poster children for paleontology. Ugh. But... If you were a PR expert and you had to give another group of prehistoric animals the same amount of press that dinosaurs get, what group of animal would you choose and why would you choose it? Whales. Ah, great. Straight in. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Probably whales because, you know, eventually someone else would look at crazy, weird Mesozoic groups. But whales are awesome because, you know, they live today of course, they're in danger group and they're crazily diverse. Plus they started early on, like after the end Cretaceous mass extinction. So around 60 million years ago, we see that there is this group of land dwelling mammals that at some point starts, you know, invading the water bodies and evolving things that are not anymore like limbs but becomes closer to paddles and starting adapting everything from the skull to the tail to invade the water and it's amazing and these kind of transformations is the thing that you can literally show to students in undergrads to make them understand how evolution works how environmental pressures literally affect the development and the life history of an animal's at the population levels and then affects all the microevolution for 60 million years ago. And then eventually you've got orcas today doing crazy things in the Arctic. So yeah, I think whales. That's a great answer. I wasn't expecting whales. Whales freak me out because they, they, they came from fish, evolved to come on land, became mammals and then moved back into the sea. So right. Guys, make yes. your mind up. And, anyway. and if I had to choose a second group, but Ooh. now I will explain why I would prefer whales because the fossil records is better and it's more documented. But the other crazy ones would be bats. Because okay. bats, if you think about it, they're even weirder to understand as a microevolutionary phenomenon than, uh, for example, the evolution of birds from theropod dinosaurs. Because, you know, if you think about it, people may say, oh, but a bird is not a dinosaur, but it actually is. We saw their morphology, you know, step-by-step step changing and eventually becoming those winged animals that are birds today. But if you think bats are even weirder because, you know, they come from something that we're used to think as, you know, land dwelling. We even struggle to imagine mammals in the water. Let's just imagine those mammals that eventually took flight. It's, it's crazy in the, and the fossil record is so mysterious. Like we don't exactly know if, when, ex when exactly they started off. Uh, they pretty much appear in the fossil record. We've already hyper elongated fingers and 
potentially ready to fly or to do act to perform active flight. So yeah, they're crazy cool. So so Alessandra is a mammal worker then. Uh, what about you two, uh, Emma and Chris? Do you have any any groups that need some PR? The first thing I thought of when I was thinking about my answer to this was, so Dimetrodon is usually mistaken for a dinosaur, even though it's not a dinosaur. And actually Dimetrodon, this is a sailback reptile that you're probably familiar with, big sail on its back, quite a wide reptile-like stance. Um, but its group, the Pelicosaurus and the Synapses in general, actually don't get enough attention. And they're really cool, really diverse. They lead on to mammals. They're just a really cool group. And all they get is this single Dimetrodon that's sometimes called a dinosaur. So yeah. I was a PR expert. I think I'd go straight there. Gorgonopsids, they're pretty yes. sweet. My God, they're, yes. They're nightmare right. fuel. Like giant. <laughs> so I think they were like, was it Primeval, the TV series that used Gorgonopsids oh, yeah. as like the big scary mon? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If I could do a kissing emoji. That's Gorgonopsids. Dr. Yeah. Dean, have you got any animal groups that need some sweet, fossil animal groups that need some sweet PR? So I think, I think mine, I've got, I, I am, I'm going to do an Alessandra. I have two brief answers that I can give. Number one, placodonts, because they're just great and they're like super odd. They're like the weird turtle things that are around in the Triassic that aren't turtles, but are turtles and they kind of look like turtles. And they're just really cute. And no one works on them. No one does anything on them. So they kind of need a little right. bit of a boost. Um, and yeah, it's, it's always a thing like, I just never see anything published on them or anyone doing anything on them. They, 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 they deserve some love. It would be nice. But Dr. Uh, Dean is basically saying, if you're a placodont worker, please let me know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was, yeah come on, come on, come on, come on to the show. It'd be great. Yeah. Um, otherwise, bivalves. Like, I knew it, I knew it. it's going to be bivalves. It's so obvious. To bivalves. They're fucking great. Sorry. <laughs> no, I didn't swear. No, terrible. Um, bivalves are amazing. They've been around for like, what, 550 odd million years? Like, enormous amount of time. They've like completely swamped our fossil record. We have an incredible fossil record of them. They've gone into every available niche. You have ones that can hunt, you have ones that live at the in like environments where you don't even have oxygen like they but can they live stream on twitch i mean <laughs> but give them time give them, <laughs> give them, give them years. they've had 550 million years what more time do they need bivalves <laughs> hey, are amazing and yeah they're, they're all kinds of different shapes of morphology you can learn so much about ecology and evolution from them um i think that they are underappreciated so there you go. I'm sold. Yeah, I'm it's sold. already working. All right. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm done. Uh, well, my first um, go to was going to be uh, Eurypterids, which are fossil sea scorpions, because I think they get a bit, a bit of bad press because they look kind of, well, firstly, the word scorpion freaks out a lot of people. I think yeah. just insects in general, I think insects have a bit of a raw deal because, you know, they're, a bit, they're pioneers, they come onto land first, they get massive. Carboniferous is their heyday 300 million years ago. And you get like these giant millipedes that you could ride and spiders like the size of frisbees. But, um, and then they kind of, I don't know, I, I feel like with better PR, they could have done better, you know? They could have lasted a bit longer. Yeah. Oh. Anyway. Yeah. <sighs> well on that bombshell i think that's a really really great place to sort of wrap up but um we started with dinosaurs and we came all the way back to invertebrates yeah of course you i had too. to round it off we couldn't we couldn't you know 
we I'm couldn't keep here. going we started to sort of talk i'm sorry anyway so anyway all good things have to come to an end we've run out of time this week um we're back in two weeks so don't worry and you can catch up with us on spotify and anchor and apple pretty much anywhere where you can download your podcasts our website is fully updated with all the information lots of useful links um and uh who's coming up on the show next time and don't forget to follow us on twitter um where we put out lots of information about what's going on and we just have to say a massive thank you to Alessandro. It's been really great to talk to you, even if it was a pleasure. Dinosaurs, terms and conditions. Apply. <laughs> yes. no, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to join. And I really loved it. Lovely. It was a so, great chat. Well, thanks very much. And thank you to everyone in the chat for posting your questions. And uh, I guess this is goodbye. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Ciao.